There's a photograph that hangs in my office at the Raleigh Court Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. I asked uh, Doug Berryhill for a photograph when I was here um, of First Presbyterian Church, but I didn't want that traditional shot of the exterior of the sanctuary. I wanted a picture that told the story of this church in some way. And so the photograph that he took was of this pew here in the front where Lyle is sitting right now. The banner was down and light was streaming over the pew cushion. To my eye, it looked as though the Holy Spirit was coming to shine within the walls of the sanctuary. I sit at my desk every day and I look upon that picture, that photograph. And it reminds me of three things. One memory that comes to mind when I look at it is the renovation of this church that we undertook together. Y'all remember that? (laughs) New HVAC and zoning, new flooring and ceiling and sound system for the fellowship hall, uh, restaining wood floors, reworking bathrooms. We had to repoint the brick I knew nothing about repointing brick, and I had no idea there were so many possible shades of khaki brown mortar to try to match the original mortar of the church. There was patching cracks in the ceiling of the sanctuary. I'm glad to see they haven't returned yet. Um, And then there was the digging out of the foundation by the kitchen to fix cracks where water would leak in during heavy rains. But perhaps the most challenging part of that entire ordeal were these pews. You see, these pews were the original pews in this sanctuary, representing generations of saints who've gathered here. And the problem was they were made out of pine wood. These are walnut armrests on pine wood. The pine wood was nailed together. A bunch of the uh, pews were missing the medallion on the end of them. And so it was incredibly difficult to find a craftsman who would take these pews and refinish them. When one was finally found, he could come with a trailer. He could take six pews at a time. And it took him two weeks to refinish each set of six pews. I never told you all this, but during that whole process... I ended up in my doctor-slash-episcopal priest's office, Dr. Rick Carter, because I was having physical illnesses over what was happening in our church at this time. Stress over delays in the work, how we were having to rearrange programming, complaints from congregants about what was happening or what choices were being made. Their names include... Just kidding, I'm not going to talk But I stressed so much because it mattered so much. Because we were making an investment on this journey of faith. We raised about $350,000 for this project. You remember this? You gave your money to it. Because we were convinced that the gospel was among us not in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. It was a project of hope in the good news of God that it was still at work among us. Those pews then represented our past and they pointed us to our future. 
the saints who'd gathered here to pray and to sing and to learn. Tears shed at funerals for tragic deaths, lives taken too young. Tears shed at funerals in celebration of lives long lived, lives that had climbed to the top of the highest mountains on earth. There were smiles and laughter as vows were made at weddings here as long as we both shall live. There are names that reverberate through the generations in this church, last names like Forney, Fane, Moser, Zirkel, Piper, Hudson, Skeen, and Klein. In these pews, the power of the Spirit moved this church to support missionaries, organize yard sales and plan youth events, sign prayer shawls, stack canned goods for mission and gather hundreds of boxes of macaroni and cheese at Christmas. The physical illness I was experiencing over the renovation of this church and its pews was the result of asking God in my own times of doubt through that ordeal. Is this still possible? Will you still be at work in our church as you were for the last almost 150 years, God? But your lives testify that you all were and still are, as Paul writes, imitators of the Lord, who had received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the second thing I think about when I look at these pews is I see in that photograph in the Spirit's light your faces. I remember how in my first two years here as pastor, when I'd go home after a session meeting, I never slept the night after a session meeting. I would relive every moment of the meeting. What was said? What did I not say? Who should I have tried to get to be quiet? Who should I have asked to talk more? I'd usually end up getting up about 3 o'clock in the morning and begin writing emails about what was going to need to happen the next day. And then about 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd get replies from Peggy Hypes, who became clerk of session at the time, saying, Andrew, why are you sending emails at 3 o'clock in the morning? Don't worry so much. Go to sleep. There's the memories of being in your homes, the tour of Jameis Seahorn's art in her house, and meeting the latest incarnation of Buddy, her German shepherd. Leon named every German shepherd Buddy, no matter which one it was. Driving all the way out in those hills of Granger County to the cabin of Harry and Judy Finley, and visiting Judy as she could remember all of your birthdays from memory. Times out on the back deck at Jim Forney's house as his little dog, Maddie, ran around our feet and he would choke up and tear up yet again about his beloved Betsy who had died. Lynn Watkins, climbing our front steps of our house with a giant bucket of strawberries that he'd picked up for us in North Carolina. The most delicious lunches ever cooked by George Twine. And these great visits with Gail, always featuring Cabot Cheddar from their native state of Vermont. <laughs> Times taking Simon as a little baby over to Chandler House 
to visit with Miss Argy Sailor. And we would call the roll of her siblings, Elmer, Nora, Virgil, Opal, William. Who else, Dell? Did I get them all? I have them all. Yes, I didn't know if I'd remember them still. And then we'd always talk about her nine direct descendants. I remember coming home on a Saturday after Thanksgiving. We were in Knoxville. We came back. I got a call from Jimmy Hodges. His mother, Helen, was dying, so I left the house that night. I went over to be with him. And while we were visiting together, his mother, Helen, passed through the veil from this life into eternity. We're going over to Sarah Piper's house always with a glass of tea and cookies, to sit on the back porch there, her incredible sunroom. She kept a coloring book and crayons uh, because there were sometimes I'd bring Simon along, and so she wanted to have something for him to do. When I see that photograph, I have memories of our trips too. Youth trips to Montreat with energizers and small groups and staying up far too late at night. Mission trips to Charlotte, where I scraped the side of the first Presbyterian Morristown bus. (laughs) Or the mission trip to Atlanta, where I didn't pay enough to park my car in the parking lot, and I got booted. I thought Roxanne Moser was going to lose her religion over that. (laughs) We are here on a mission trip to do God's work, she said. There was Uncle Phil's Diner, directed by Delyn McCash to raise money for the youth mission trip. Caramel apples, better than anything you'd ever tasted for yard sale Saturday. And the most amazing potlucks on Wednesday night, where I got my fill of deviled eggs, fried okra, and cornbread. Also, the times that Angie France saved my rear. I'd come to Angie planning worship, and I'd say, okay... I want to introduce three new hymns and a prayer song on this Sunday because it just matches the scripture so well. And she'd smirk and she'd say, you know, if you do too much new stuff on one Sunday, you aren't going to have the effect you're going for. You're going to lose, folks. Just saying. (laughs) But she was also gracious and open to many of those harebrained ideas. And it was a delight to get to sing in her choir and see her love for this church and its mission. Y'all better cherish these next two Sundays because you are losing an irreplaceable legacy in this place. And then the power behind the scenes here too, Heather Hill. How many times have I said, if only I could work with Heather Hill since I've been in Roanoke, Virginia? the most caring, funny, and hardworking partner in the next office, keeping everything running and on time and never complaining about completing all the last-minute harebrained ideas I'd have, and she never cussed me to my face. (laughs) Right. Going to her house to tell her that we were moving is one of the hardest things still that I've ever had to do professionally. There were Super Bowl parties in our basement, the women's Christmas tea we held in our living room, cookouts on our back stoop, the honks you all would offer me when you'd see me running down the shoulder of Highway 92 with my dog training for a marathon. We shared life together as pastor and congregation. And your energy and generosity and commitment to the Lord 
or powerful. Powerful in our personal lives, too. You threw us the greatest baby shower that's ever been thrown. Three kids now have slept in that crib that you not only bought, but also assembled. Blankets used and washed. And we remember you every time we fold them and put them back in the drawer. How many of you came over to our house when Rebecca first went back to work to hold Simon for a few hours or to keep him in your homes? All the times you had us over to eat, show us the Snoopy collection, or going out on boat rides, or playing golf, or letting us use the old barn for family Christmas pictures. You loved us so fully and so deeply. That love and care is felt throughout this community. Just ask the folks at Appalachian Outreach or Habitat for Humanity or recipients of yard sale monies or guests the Church Street Cafe. Imitators of our servant Lord Jesus who makes our life possible, whose saving way has been sung and preached and prayed in these pews Sunday after Sunday. So when I see that photograph in my office, I remember the renovation we undertook. I remember the memories with you all here. But there's a third thing I think about when I see that photograph. And what I see is a threat. The threat of the empty pew. I wrote about this in a devotional one time, too. It's a reminder, that empty pew, that my goal as a pastor and a preacher is to lead people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow his church. I don't want to walk into a church to preach to a bunch of empty pews. So when I was here, I kept an index card in the top drawer of my desk. It had three numbers on it. I never told you about this index card or about the numbers that were there. They were personal goals. If I talked about them, they would have created a depersonalized ministry together. The three numbers were a goal for membership that I had that I, in my own head for the church, for worship attendance on Sunday mornings, and for financial giving each year to the budget. I don't remember anymore what the membership goal or the giving goal was, but I do remember the attendance goal, and here's why. So going back through the old records of the church, I learned pretty early on that Dr. Keith Nickel was sort of the pinnacle of pastors in the history of this congregation. And so I saw in the annual statistical reports that you turn into the presbytery every year that the average worship attendance on the Sundays when Dr. Nickel was here was 125. Now, I doubted that that was true because it was that same number every year, year after year, <laughs> and awfully round at that. But it's what I had. So I made that my goal. I wanted to average 125 people a Sunday. Now, I don't have all three of those numbers in my head, but I do have these because I was working on that goal. 2013, we averaged 111 people a Sunday. I remember I was frustrated when we ran the numbers for 2014 because we hit 111 again. <laughs> but when we moved to Roanoke in 2015... We were averaging 118 people a Sunday, and I am convinced if we'd had more time, we would have eventually reached that 125 number. You see, there's a problem, there's a lie going around in the mainline church today. You've heard it 
I've preached it, but I no longer believe it, okay? Here's the lie. Our culture is secularizing. Cultural expectations that someone will move to an area and find a church home have declined. And so fewer and fewer feel a social pressure to be part of a church. And so cultural Christianity is dead. So churches better batten down the hatches, prepare for declining numbers, especially in rural areas. You better just try to hang on. You're going to shrink and probably close as we move into this post-Christian world. That's the narrative. It was so pronounced when I came out of seminary. We heard warnings from denominational leaders and seminary staff. You know, you probably won't be able to even be full-time pastors over a three-decade career. Now, those statistical analyses of Christian culture in America aren't entirely a lie. The culture is secularizing. There is less expectation that people are going to be part of church communities, but this doomsday future that therefore there's nothing we can do about it is hogwash. Churches can still grow. Churches can still thrive. In our four years together, we added 40 new members to the life of our church. In the four years I've been in Roanoke, Virginia, we've added 150 new members to our church in Roanoke. What it takes today, though, is where you used to be able to just let the culture take care of your church's growth because people just went and joined. It takes a refusal to accept mediocrity or play a blame game that says, you know, well, it's just a cultural demise. The secular forces are just too strong. There's nothing we can do about it. It takes a church that's willing to follow the instruction of Paul to the Thessalonians that the word of the Lord has sounded forth. From you. I had to fight a little bit of that lesser than mentality when I was here for those four years. That's why I titled my sermon what I did this morning. There would be this mindset where people would say, you know, we've got a pretty good music program for a church our size. You know, we do a lot of good mission work for a church our size. You know, we led a pretty good vacation Bible school for a church our size. And y'all remember me yelling at you about this, right? Don't qualify your witness based on your membership, and don't stop working hard because you're not as big as somebody else. Because your reputation has gone forth as a model congregation. I can't tell you how many sermons I've preached in Roanoke, Virginia that have talked about y'all and what you've done for the kingdom of God here. Don't sell yourself short. and Don't accept anything less than the far-reaching love and grace of God. I've been in Roanoke about a month. I got a phone call from Gary Coppage. He was from the local rescue mission. He was asking if I wanted to take part in being a spiritual director for men who were in the drug and alcohol recovery program. He and I met at the rescue mission for lunch. You were the pastor in Jefferson City, Tennessee, right? He asked. I was for four years. He goes, I know Jefferson City. 
At this point, I went into my usual spiel, maybe you have too, that Jefferson City and Johnson City are not the same place. But he cut me off. No, 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 no. I meant Jefferson City. I went to Carson Newman. I became a Presbyterian in that church. Odell Smith was the pastor. I went to Bible study with him each Sunday and worshiped in those pews every Sunday morning. From these pews, Gary Coppedge went on to seminary, became an ordained Presbyterian minister, and spent most of his career as a foreign mission worker in a variety of countries on the continent of Africa. Hundreds of lives around the world touched, people coming to Christ, human lives being met because of what happened in these pews. You, First Presbyterian Church, are a Thessalonian congregation. You are a model to other churches a congregation with a heritage of faithfulness, with living saints today, and an abiding calling to this community, no matter the broader trends, to fill these pews with new saints who will live and give their lives to our servant Lord. Never qualify your witness. For you are a guide to us all, no matter your size.